Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. In 1783, a very young pastor named Charles Simeon was appointed to head a church that was called, and still is called, Trinity Church in Cambridge, England, nearby that university of the same name, Cambridge. But the people at Trinity Church did not want Charles Simeon to be there. Most unfortunate for a young pastor. They had an associate pastor, John Hammond. They wanted him to become the lead pastor. But lo and behold, instead, Charles Simeon was appointed. And what is even worse, Charles Simeon was what they used to call an enthusiast, meaning he preached the Bible and believed its teachings about heaven and hell, about God, Christ, salvation, and the Holy Spirit as if they were true, as if he felt them, and he preached them that way. But in that highly educated college town there in Cambridge, that was not a popular thing to do. Moderation and calmness was highly valued. So not only was he not wanted because he wasn't John Hammond, but worse than that, he was an enthusiast. And so people made it very clear that he wasn't welcome there. So this young pastor, he's preaching, but the bulk of the people locked their pews. I guess there were locks on their pews back then. Glad we got rid of those. But they locked their pews and stayed home so that anyone who wanted to hear Charles Simeon preach in Trinity Church had to stand in the aisles. That was the only place they could be. So Simeon, to rectify the situation, purchased and brought in seating to put in the aisles. But he showed up one Sunday morning and someone had kindly taken the seating and thrown it in the churchyard. They had an evening service, a lecture, but he showed up for that and the church wardens had locked the door of the church and left with the key. So he got a smith to break him into his own church to preach the evening lecture, which he afterward discontinued. <laughs> Rowdy students from Cambridge would come with the intention of disrupting the services, Charles Simeon had to appoint men specifically to remove the distractions that were there each week so that he could preach. There was one day that several of the students gathered around the front door of the church intending to jump upon Charles Simeon and do him harm when he left. And by God's providence, he went out the back door that day. What's worse... Those student, students who really were believers and appreciated this fervent preaching, biblical preaching from Simeon, they were labeled Simeonites and treated poorly by others at Cambridge. Simeon, who was a fellow there at Cambridge, was basically ignored by all the other faculty. He said it was an, an immense surprise one day when one other member of the faculty walked with him and spoke with him 15 minutes. That was a surprise. He was quite isolated. He was not liked. He was not welcome. And this continued, no joke, for 30 years. He said after 30 years, it got better. But that continued for 30 years. Simeon really had options to escape persecution of that duration and intensity for 30 years. He really could have given in to the moderates who wanted him to chill his gospel over ice, to calm it down, to cool it down, 
to preach in a way that was more philosophical, more reflective of Cambridge. But he wouldn't do it. He could have done it. He could have at least got the pews unlocked, you know. But he didn't. He continued preaching Christ fervently as he ought to be preached under that level of persecution for that many decades and that much mistreatment. He was a, what he called himself, a Bible preacher, not a system preacher. And he wasn't going to go with the times. He was going to preach what the Bible said, the way the Bible said it, according to the way we ought to feel about what the Bible said. And that's what he did. And therefore, even though he was rejected by a number, later years he was more accepted, after 30 years, but rejected by so many, he did inherit that promise that Jesus gave to his messengers who proclaim his message faithfully in the face of persecution, namely, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Those who speak God's message clearly and accurately, they will not be liked. They will be persecuted. It's a testimony of Scripture. Proclaiming God's Word, therefore, when, especially when it's scary to do that, that is pleasing in God's sight. That was the theme of Charles Simeon's life. And I mention it because it's the theme of Samuel's life. This young man whom we've been following in Shiloh, brought there as a child, dedicated to the Lord, as the priests, Eli and his sons Hophni and Phinehas at Shiloh, are perverting the worship. Little Samuel as a boy is growing up. He is about to become a mouthpiece for God Almighty. But first he has to undergo really a kind of test. He has to receive God's very first communication to him, a frightening message that he does not want to share, and then he has to share it as a faithful messenger, just like Charles Simeon did, just like we're called to do. So let's look at this test of his courage, this beginning of his prophethood, if you will, for Samuel. This is in 1 Samuel chapter 3, and we're beginning in verse 11. Samuel has just told God there in the tabernacle in the early morning hours, speak for your servant hears. Verse 11 begins. Then the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli... All that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever. For the iniquity that he knew. Because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. 
But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Don't hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he, Eli, said, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Chapter 4 begins, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. We've now followed the progress of this boy, Samuel, from his very conception to his birth, his very young years being brought to Shiloh, dedicated there as a child, just weaned. And we've been seeing him grow and serve as a child, even as the house of Eli has grown fatter by benefiting sinfully off the sacrifices. We've seen that. Eli and his sons Hophni and Phinehas. Now we know that this boy, just a boy, Samuel, serving in the tabernacle, we know he's going to play a large role in God's purposes. After all, we're reading a book called 1 Samuel, (laughs) followed by 2 Samuel. But he didn't know about this book. He didn't know this for himself, that he would serve any significant role in God's economy or purpose. But he would. He would become the first national prophet or mouthpiece for God to Israel since Moses. But in order to become such, he needed to pass this test because the single most important mark of a true mouthpiece of Yahweh is that they are willing to convey God's message completely and accurately, even if and especially if they are afraid to do it. That is the kind of test that Samuel finds himself facing right now. Eli is his father figure. More than that, Eli is the single most important political leader in the nation. He's a judge. Everyone looks to Eli. He's also a religious leader, the most important religious leader in the nation. He's at the pinnacle of the nation, and he is a kind of father figure to Eli. And the very first message that Samuel must proclaim as a prophet from God is that Eli and his house will be obliterated. And he is afraid to do it. But when the moment of truth comes, he does it. That's the point. And we want the same to be true of us. We're not all called to be prophets, of course, not like Samuel here. Some of you may be called to proclaim the gospel in public. All of us are called to proclaim this gospel house to house, one-on-one with those who are around us. The question is, when the moment of truth comes for you, when you have an opportunity to speak to someone else the truth of God's word and you are afraid to do it, will you still do it? To help you with this, God has provided this text. So let's look at this. We're going to break this text down into its two natural parts. The first is the frightening message. And then after that is the frightened messenger, Samuel, who 
nonetheless does share the message. So let's begin with the frightening message here. We are joining a very young Samuel. He's there in the tabernacle. It is before sunrise. It is dark except for one single flickering flame, which is the lamp of God kept lit overnight. And Samuel has just understood that the Lord is calling to him, Samuel, Samuel, with Eli's help, he understood that. And he says, speak, your servant hears. And then this is what the Lord tells his servant in verse 11 on. Then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from the beginning to end. And I declare to him, or I declared in the past to him, that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. That's quite a first message for this little boy to have to proclaim. It is a message of judgment. There's not a silver lining in there. It's just judgment. Unpardonable, severe, certain judgment upon the most important house in the nation at that time and certainly to, to Samuel as well. But there's a sense in which it was good that Samuel's very first message was one of difficulty to prove whether he would be a faithful messenger. We're going to see later in 1 Samuel that Samuel, when he's grown, will have the very important task of, again, declaring judgment upon a house in a way painful to him. Only this time it will be to Israel's first king, Saul. When Saul rejects obedience, turns away from God, disobeys him, God rejects Saul from being king, and Samuel is the one who has to deliver that message. And we re will read later, when he does so, it says, quote, Samuel grieved over Saul. But you know what? He did it. He delivered that message. And he learned how to do that here in our text. So before we see more of Samuel's response, his faithfulness, we want to look at the frightening message itself. What was he supposed to convey that he didn't want to? It's a judgment. Notice two things about it. It's a severe judgment and it's a certain judgment. First, the severity of this judgment appears in verse 11 in a striking phrase that you may remember from your Bible reading, even if you re remember little else from this chapter. Behold, God says, I am about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. Eli and his sons are beyond the slapping of a hand. They're beyond, don't do that anymore. They have been hardened into a pattern of blasphemous disobedience for a long time. Therefore, God is bringing judgment. But he's not just bringing any judgment. He's bringing a judgment that by his own intention, by God's own purpose, is a shocking judgment. It is so severe that when people hear it, they will have a visceral response. That's the idea. Their heart will drop. Their stomach will tighten. Their heart rates will increase. He says here their ears will tingle. 
Meaning you'll be, people will be physically affected when they hear how shocking and severe this judgment is that falls upon Eli's house. The judgment we're going to see in chapter 4, it continues afterward, but that's kind of the bulk of it. We'll see in chapter 4 coming up. But what will happen in chapter 4, what will make people's ears tingle is when they, safe in their homes in Israel, hear a messenger come and tell them, 30,000 of the prime men of our nation have died in battle with our enemies. 30,000. The Ark of the Covenant, which represents or symbolizes God's presence with us, has been taken by our enemies, the Philistines. It's gone. Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who lead the sacrifices in Shiloh, have been murdered in war. And Eli, the judge who is leading us at the very top, when he heard this message, fell off his chair and broke his neck and is dead. Maybe it would help you to understand some of the tingling of the ears that Israelites would have heard, felt, when they heard this message. If you heard a message like, 30,000 of our American troops have died in battle in a hostile nation. Congress has been bombed, and all of our congressmen nationally have died, and the president has been assassinated. If you heard that, how would you feel? A tingling of the ears. That's what's happened here. That's what God says is about to happen. It is, like I said, a severe judgment, not a small judgment. Notice too, this is a severe judgment. And sometimes when we read scripture, it can be hard for us to hear God give such severe judgments. But know that this judgment is not more severe than Eli's house deserved. This is coming from a perfectly righteous judge, the exactly right punishment for Eli's house. Verse 13 gives God's reason why he's giving such a severe judgment. Because Eli's sons were blaspheming or making little of God, and he didn't restrain them. You might say, well, he gave them a sort of mild, don't do that anymore in chapter 2. Obviously, it wasn't enough to restrain them. He didn't remove them from what they were doing. They continued. Their sin that we saw in chapter 2, Hophni and Phinehas and Eli's allowance of it, their sin was shocking and therefore it deserves a shocking judgment. That's right. That's appropriate. A severe judgment. Not only is this judgment that Samuel's going to have to proclaim severe, but it's also certain. That's clear in the text. Verse 12 basically says this has been a long time coming. It's not the first time anyone's heard of this. Verse 12 on that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have already, I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end, all of it. If you go all the way back to early chapter 2, when Eli is trying to kind of correct his sons mildly, even he has a foreboding that judgment will fall upon his house. He told his sons, if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? His fears were solidified when right after that in chapter 2, an unnamed man of God appears and tells him, Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. And now Samuel must convey this message again because this message will be confirmed by two witnesses, the man of God and Samuel. It's a certain thing. 
It won't be avoided. It won't be escaped. Eli, even in his response, you almost feel like he's just letting things be kind of hands-off. David will struggle with this in raising his own children, a bit too hands-off, we would say. But he's letting things be, but there's a certainty to this judgment. That's what God makes clear. It will come to pass. Verse 13 begins, and I declared to him in the ESV, probably other translations have it better, like the NASB that puts it in the past tense, for I have told him, or I declared in the past to him. I think again, God is referring to the fact that chapter 2, I already told you this will happen. And then there's certainty in that word he uses, forever. I'm about to punish his house forever. Meaning there will be a finality to this punishment. It's not going to be a smack on the hand, and then Eli and his sons get back up, we're sorry, and keep being the priests. No, it's going to be severe, certain, there will be a finality about the judgment that falls on them. And then comes the hardest thing that Samuel will have to say, and that's in verse 14. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. We know that many of God's declarations of judgment come with an implied condition, meaning when God says, I will punish you, it's his way of saying, so repent that I might not punish you. We see this, for example, in Jonah's mission to wicked Nineveh. When Nineveh repents, when Jonah says, you will be overturned in 40 days. And when Nineveh repents of their wickedness, we read, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he didn't do it. It had an implied condition. You will be overturned in 40 days, so why not repent? In fact, when you look throughout Scripture... Every time a person or a nation repents, God does not bring a disastrous judgment upon them like he said he would. He doesn't if they, if they repent. That's almost, I think that's always there. In every case in Scripture, there can be consequences, but not the disastrous judgment. So how could it be in this case that God says the sin of your house cannot be atoned for? It's a sort of unpardonable sin, and we've spoken of this already that they had crossed a line. But in crossing the line, what happened was that God was not going to work repentance in them. Scripture teaches that all of us by nature from the time of our birth, we are bent toward rebellion and sin. Sorry if you didn't know that. That's true. We are bent in that direction naturally. And we will keep being bent that way unless God by his Holy Spirit unbends us. That's conversion or regeneration. That has to be a work that God does in us to unbend us so that we repent. But we saw that when Eli in chapter 2 tried to correct his sons mildly, they would not listen. They would not repent. Why? Chapter 2 says, They would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Eli obviously is not repenting because when he hears the message in our text in verse 18, he says, well, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. It'd be better if Eli did what seems good to the Lord, but he just doesn't repent. The reason that their sins, the sins of his house, will never be atoned for by any of the sacrifices that they're facilitating there is because they will never truly repent. 
That is the worst judgment that God can give on anyone. They rebel against him, rebel against him, and he gives them over and says, if that's what you want, go. That's what he had done for this house. So that's the frightening message. It's not one that you would like to tell to your father figure. There Samuel is in the wee hours of the morning. And he has to give this message of severe and certain judgment. So let's turn our attention now from that message to the messenger, a frightened messenger, I might add, Samuel, who nonetheless in the moment of truth does declare the message. Look at this beginning in verse 15. This is the test that's put before him. Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Don't hide it from me. May God do so to you. And more also, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. It's hard for me to imagine that Samuel slept that morning. If you had just spoken with God, for one thing, it'd be difficult to sleep after that early in the morning. Of course, if the message is terrifying and you are coming to a moment of truth, anticipating how you'll have to break that to Eli and to the nation, that's also terrifying. So I don't imagine that Samuel slept. Maybe he did, probably not. We know in our text that once it was morning, he was afraid. So probably he was afraid ever since he got the message. It was actually Eli, interestingly, who makes this test easier for Samuel by playing a kind of good cop, bad cop with him. Starts with, Samuel, my son, (laughs) tell me what you heard. And then threatens him with a curse. May God do so to you and more also. That's a typical way of putting a curse. If you don't do this, may God do, and he doesn't say what, just something terrible. If you don't tell me, he says, if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. I don't know why Eli was so eager to hear the message. Surely he knew. He had the foreboding. He already heard the other message. Surely he knew this was not a good message, and yet he was eager to hear it. And in appealing to young Samuel to tell him the message, he communicates to us and teaches Samuel maybe the most important lesson for a young prophet to learn. Do not hide anything from me or conceal even a single word of the message. That was God's will for Samuel, spoken through Eli there. Every single word of the message you speak. Oh, but it's scary. It doesn't matter. You're a messenger. You don't invent the message. You communicate the message. And Samuel needed to learn that. And Eli, oddly enough, he's such a mixed character. He helps him to learn that by appealing to him. And so finally, the moment of truth is there. And really, it seems inevitable, but at that moment, Samuel didn't have to tell him everything. There's no other witnesses. It's Samuel. He heard the message. He doesn't have to tell everything to Eli. He can soften the message. He can lessen it. He can use general vague terms. God said it's not going to be so good for you. That's a general way to say that. He can try to lessen the message. So it's the moment of truth. And of course, if this were Eli's sons, they would. They were very self-serving. They didn't mind to rationalize and justify their behavior, but not Samuel. And so when the moment of truth comes in verse 18, 
So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. The best parallel to this in the Old Testament is in that prophet known as Micaiah, whom we find in 1 Kings 22. You may remember him. He was a saucy prophet, if I may say, who spoke his mind clearly, spoke the Lord's mind clearly. He didn't mind doing it. First Kings 22, Ahab is a wicked king of the northern part of God's people, and he joins up with Jehoshaphat, who's the king of the southern part, and they're going to attack a city that belongs to Syria and try to take it. So they've joined together. And there are 400 prophets, false prophets, but there's 400 of them. And so these kings ask the prophets, should we go attack that city? And 400 prophets together say, go up for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat, who's not as bad as Ahab, says, well, isn't there like a prophet of the Lord we could ask as well, just to get a second opinion? And very famously, that's when Ahab says, well, there is one, Micaiah, but I do not like him because he always prophesies evil and not good concerning me. (laughs) He always tells the truth. Don't you hate prophets like that? They have did. And then we read, so they go to send to him and we read, and the messenger who went to summon Micaiah said to him, behold, the words of the prophets with one accord are favorable to the king. Let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. And Micaiah said, but Micaiah said, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I will speak. See, that's the lesson of a true prophet. Just conveying them whatever. Even Balaam, when he was called by Balak to curse Israel, even he, though he was greedy and he wanted the king's reward, he said the same thing. Whatever God says, I've got to speak that. So Micaiah did. He goes and he tells them, yeah, you're all going to die. And lo and behold, they didn't like that message. And one of the false 400 prophets slaps him on the cheek. And Ahab says, throw him in prison. Feed him with bread and water until I come back safely. And he says, if you come back safely, God didn't speak by me. Micaiah knew the lesson of a prophet. A prophet speaks the message on the days he wants to, on the days he doesn't want to. When he is afraid, when he thinks that it's going to result in being in prison, eating bread and water till you die. Whatever the case may be, a faithful prophet speaks God's word. That's what Samuel was learning here. This is what all the prophets did. That's why if you read the Old Testament, the prophets, literally the mouthpieces for God, you would expect them to live luxurious lives. (laughs) Many of the false televangelists who claim to be mouthpieces for God today do live luxurious lives, but that is in contrast to and not in keeping with the picture of the mouthpieces of God who truly were in Scripture. They died. That's what happened to them. They were not liked. They got titles like, the weeping prophet. You don't want to be the weeping prophet. That's what Jeremiah was because he watches his nation destroyed and he had to just keep telling everyone it will be destroyed. They said, stop saying that. We don't want to hear that. But it will and it was. And then he has to prophesy, see it was destroyed. That's not a very fun life to live. But Jeremiah was faithful. He was proclaiming God's message faithfully. Isaiah supposedly was put into a log and sawn in half. That was common treatment for the prophets. When you get to the New Testament, it's no different. Jesus himself speaks the truth and they don't like it, so they kill him. And then the disciples who carry his message on, 
They don't like that message, so they kill them. Very common treatment for faithful mouthpieces. But you see, in all those examples for these true prophets, even knowing what was probably going to happen to them, they still faithfully spoke God's message. A good messenger must convey the message. They must be conveyed fully, like Eli's appeal. Don't hide anything. And no matter how he feels about the message emotionally, no matter what kind of day he's having, doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. doesn't matter. He must speak fully what God has said. Even if he's afraid, if he says this frankly, what's going to happen? doesn't matter. doesn't matter. You have to convey God's message. That's why in our text, Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But then we read, Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. You probably already see some of the connections of this text to your own life. We, of course, are not prophets in the same way, but we are entrusted with God's message. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. Go and make disciples and teach. That's taking God's word. Proclaim it to all creation, we are told. That's a responsibility that you have. God's complete message is contained in the scriptures. The center of it is the gospel. And you are called to share that gospel with others. In our day, that's a scary thing to do. It's not, it's not scary to tell someone God loves them. It's almost never scary to tell someone. And you should tell them that. That's true. That's true. You, that may have been when you came to Christ, you saw God's love for you, you saw Christ's love for you, and you came to Christ. That's true, so keep saying that. I'm not at all against that at all, of course. But God's love for us and the death of Christ upon the cross only really makes sense when you have first understood that he had to die on the cross because we are bad. It's because we're bad. Not only are we bad, sinning every day against God from our very corrupt natures, but God, being so righteous, sees our badness and he hates it. He loves us. It's an amazing mystery. But he, Scripture says he suffers indignation every day. He's not like, oh, everybody's sinning. That's okay. He feels a severe righteous repugnance against sin. So for him to send Christ to die upon the cross is remarkable because we're so loathsome naturally to him because he's so righteous. That's why there's a hell that lasts forever. Forever. You thought of that? That's forever. Because that is, again, the right response of God to sin. So that's how bad we are that it takes eternity for a punishment equal to our badness against God, all of us. That's bad. So that's why the gospel's amazing because Christ sent, came and gave his life not when we were righteous but when we were that bad so that he could take God's wrath on the cross so that we could be forgiven. If you tell this part of the message that God loves you and he gave your son and has a good plan for you, there's truth to it. But will you hide this part of the message from others. And today, from pulpits like this one, this part of the message will never be heard. Because it's scary to say this part of the message. It's scary to say it to Christians. Imagine how scary it is to say it to an unbeliever. Of course, we do it with tact. 
We don't put it on a sign and go protest and say mean things to people. That's more our problem, not their problem. But that is a significant, a necessary part of the message. When you tell someone, are you saved? Saved from what? God's wrath. Saved from God's wrath. You won't always hear it. But we have to be willing to share with others lovingly, tactfully, graciously. Genuine love. To share that people are bad, however you say that. It's sin against, it's not just uh, you feel guilty, there's a psychological thing and your parents and all this stuff. You're bad. You're bad. That's why you need a savior. You need a savior because you're sinful before God, more sinful than you can even fathom. And that's why the cross is more amazing than you could imagine. But you have to understand. So we're happy to share this part, but this part will you convey because you are responsible for conveying the problem and the solution. You can't just show up with the solution. People have to understand there's a problem. The Holy Spirit is here to help us convicting people of their sins. But if the Holy Spirit doesn't convict someone of their sin, and you don't know when that's happening, he's invisible, but you share your bad, they're not going to like it. You might be persecuted. You might not be liked. You might become unpopular in your work situation or with other moms. But you are still responsible as a steward. The New Testament says it is required of a steward that he be found clever, intelligent, brilliant, wise, eloquent, none of those things. It is required of a steward that he be found faithful. I think it's probably necessary for most of us, if we're to fulfill our calling to share God's full message with others, to stop overthinking it (laughs) and just to do it, (laughs) just to talk about the gospel with others with confidence. Paul asks for prayers for himself that he might declare the gospel, quote, boldly as I ought, boldly as I ought. How should you Share God's full message with others. I'm so sorry about this part, but I've got it not like that. Boldly, boldly, that's how we ought to share the message. And when Samuel got to his moan of truth, that's what he did. And if you notice here then the outcome, beginning in verse 19 at the end of our passage, he passes the test And we hear, and Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, Dan's a city, it's also a tribe, but we're talking about the city way up in the north, Beersheba, way down in the south. All of them knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh. Beginning of chapter 3, there is no frequent vision, no word from God. Now he's appearing regularly to Samuel by the word of the Lord. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Pilgrims are coming to Shiloh. And now they're seeing, wow, the things that Samuel says, they come true. That's the test of a prophet, Deuteronomy 18. The things he's saying, they actually come true. People are learning, wow, we have a prophet there was no word. Now there's a word. He's, pro- he's speaking and he's faithful. And he's speaking God's word and people are finding out about it. Samuel's now going to disappear for three chapters. You're not going to see him. He's gone for three chapters until he comes back later. So it's important for us now to learn this lesson that he learned. 
you are responsible to share with others the full message of the gospel, to do it boldly as you ought. You don't always have to share the whole thing in every sitting with somebody, but a willingness to tell people their problem and the solution to their problem, to be faithful as messengers. Samuel had to give a message of judgment and say, and you can't be forgiven. Your job's not that hard. You have to give a message of judgment and say, this can be atoned for by sacrifice, by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Our good news is not, God's not angry at you. Our good news is, God is angry at you. But he loves you so much that he sent his son to absorb that anger for you if you will believe on him and turn from sin. Our goal in this life is to get to the end of this life and whatever our skill in sharing God's message, to know that we did God's will in sharing his message and to hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant.